Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Kirill Kunikovich, an assistant professor in the University of Virginia's Corcoran Department of History. He's a historian of modern Europe with a particular focus on Central and Eastern Europe in the 20th century. He teaches courses on 20th century Europe, nationalism, and communism in the Cold War. Later this year, his book entitled Communism's Public Sphere, Culture as Politics in Cold War Poland and East Germany will be published by Cornell University Press. In this podcast, he will provide some historical context to the war in Ukraine. So thank you, Professor, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Susan, for having me. Great. So let's start with some context. And can you provide us with some history between Russia and Ukraine? Yes, absolutely. So the first thing to note is that Russia and Ukraine have only been separate countries for about 30 years, only since 1991, when the Soviet Union fell apart. Before then, for the previous nearly 400 years, they were part of one polity. First, the Russian Empire from about the mid-17th century until 1917, and then the Soviet Union from 1922 to 1991. And the interconnections between them actually go even deeper. Today's Russia traces its history to a people called the Rus, whose civilization was centered on Kiev. There are statues to those ancient rulers in Moscow. So Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, is also considered the cradle of Russian civilization. So there are these very deep ties between Russians and Ukrainians of different kinds. There are linguistic ties. Russian and Ukrainian are both Slavic languages, different but related. And while few Russians can speak Ukrainian, almost all Ukrainians speak Russian. In fact, as many as one-third speak it as their native language. And that's partly because of a long history of migration between those two states. Ukrainian writers, scholars, thinkers used to go to Moscow to study and work. Mykola Hochul, Ukrainian writer, went to Moscow and became Nikolai Gogol, one of the central figures of Russian literature. Russian administrators went to work in Ukraine. There are still large populations of ethnic Russians, especially in the eastern side of the country. There are also close cultural and economic ties. In fact, up until very recently, the Ukrainian electorate was legitimately divided between those who favored closer ties to the West, to the European Union, and those who favored ties with the East, with Moscow. So there's a long history of interconnection. And I do think that history absolutely factors into this conflict and perhaps helps explain it. What it doesn't do, though, is justify because. What Putin likes to claim is that the long experience of Russian rule in Ukraine means that it's really Russian territory. The fact that many Ukrainians speak Russian, he says, means they really are Russian. And none of that is true. States are not prisoners of their history. 
the fact that Virginia was ruled by the British, for instance, doesn't mean it's actually British. The fact that many Americans speak Spanish at home doesn't make them less American. Ukraine is a sovereign state with its own culture, society, identity. Its ties to Russia don't justify an intervention. This war that Russia is waging is not a war of brotherhood, of national liberation, which is how the Kremlin wants to frame it. It is very much an act of aggression. Thank you uh, for that context. It's very important. So with that long history, uh, do you see the motivation for this invasion of Ukraine to be Russia to restore its empire or the mm. Soviet Union? Mm. Well, I think to answer that question, it's useful to think about the purpose that empire served for Russia. And there were many. Economic exploitation, military strength, Ukraine factored heavily into both. It is a major agricultural center, is a major center of industry and military production. All of those were very useful to the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. But I think there are two further factors that help us make sense of the current conflict. The first is prestige and global significance. Being an empire, controlling more than just its own territory, made Russia into a world power. And Russia was acutely conscious of this. It self-consciously expanded in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in order to keep up with the British and the French. In the 20th century, the Soviet Union expanded in order to keep up with the US. Modern Russia has always wanted to be a world player, not just a nation state, but a center of gravity, the center, the focal point, of an international geopolitical order. And that's part of what was so difficult for Russians when the Soviet Union fell apart. They became just one more country, nothing special. And partly for that reason, many Russians continued to think of formerly Soviet territory as really their space. There was even a term for it, the near abroad. So abroad, but not really. And that's why it's been difficult for the Kremlin to see Ukraine turn to the West, towards the European Union. Moscow was losing what it saw as its satellite from its sphere of influence. And so I do think part of the purpose of this invasion is to restore a Russian sphere of influence. Even if an occupied Ukraine technically remains independent, like, say, Belarus, it will be part of Russia's orbit. And it will make Russia into a global power with satellites and dependencies. It will restore that global significance to which Russia aspires. So I think that's one historical parallel, one role that empire plays that Russia is trying to recapture today. But then there's another purpose that empire serves for Russia especially on its Western border. And that is as a buffer zone from the West. In fact, that's how today's Ukraine was formed. In August of 1939, Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, signed a secret treaty with Hitler. And they agreed to split up Poland amongst themselves. Hitler invaded his part of Poland and started World War II. And then a few weeks later, Stalin invaded his. And annexed 
what had been Eastern Poland to the Soviet republics of Belarus and Ukraine. So up until 1939, the city of Lviv, which we hear about in the news that's now a bastion of, of resistance to the Russians, was actually the Polish city of Lviv. And the reason the Soviet Union wanted this extra space, this extra territory, was as a buffer against German aggression. And it was right to be fearful. Germany did then turn around in 1941 and invade the Soviet Union, nearly destroy the Soviet state. So after the Second World War, the Soviet Union built an even bigger buffer zone. It held on to those territories in Western Ukraine and Belarus that it had acquired from Hitler. But it also built an entire Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe. Communist states like Poland, Hungary, East Germany were meant to protect the USSR from any possible attack from the West or even just from contact with the West. So I think that is partly what Russia wants to recover. It does not want the European Union on its doorstep. It does not want NATO on its doorstep. It wants a buffer zone from the West. And even a rump divided, occupied Ukrainian state would provide that. Thank you. So one of the disturbing aspects of this situation is Putin's use of the Nazi rhetoric to justify the invasion. And President Zelensky is Jewish and had family members that were killed in the Holocaust. So can you help me understand the use of this term in this time? Yeah, this is a striking one. Well, you're right. In Russia's telling, Ukraine is overrun by Nazis that are holding civilians hostage. If you tune into Russian news, that's what you see. And it's completely false. It's a lie. But it is a very deliberately chosen lie. There are particular reasons why Putin is using this term denazification. First, it's a term that was long associated with Ukraine in Soviet rhetoric to justify its occupation of Western Ukraine after World War II. Soviet leaders said it had been overrun by Nazis. They said, we have to destroy local elites, purge local leaders, because they were supposedly Nazified. And so when Russians hear talk of denazifying Ukraine, it rings a bell. It rings true. It's familiar. It reaffirms their existing worldview. And that worldview actually runs really deep. Because after World War II, the Soviet Union presented itself as a bastion of anti-fascism. That was its chief source of pride, its chief claim to power. It said, we beat the Nazi, which was true. That gave the Soviet Union the world historical significance that it was so hungry for. It wasn't just a superpower. It was on the side of truth and justice. It had a special, almost spiritual mission. And after the Soviet Union collapsed, this became a way for Russians to remember its achievement. The Soviet Union failed in many ways. Communism didn't work. They lost the Cold War. But they could always say that they were the state that beat the Nazis. And so this idea of defending the world from fascism is a really big part of Russian identity. Framing the war as a denazifying mission is a way to tap into that, to stimulate 
Russian Prime and is working to a point we've seen Russians rally around the flag and embrace this idea of a denazifying mission. There's one more element to this rhetoric. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union didn't just say it beat the Nazis. It said the Nazis were still alive and well in the West. Soviet propaganda always portrayed Western societies as harboring Nazis, as being overrun by them. And this was partly a way to delegitimize the U.S. and its allies by branding them as fascists. We did the same thing. The U.S. sought to delegitimize communism by saying it was the same as fascism, by branding them together as totalitarianism. And so when Putin says that Ukraine must be denazified, he's also saying that the West is responsible for nazifying. He's saying this is a war that's not just about Ukraine, it's also about stopping the West. It's about framing the West as the real underlying enemy of Russia. And that's really scary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned um, the Cold War. And uh, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s in the middle of the United States. And the Cold War was something that I studied in history and social studies classes. And so for me, it's a lens that I tend to view the current conflict uh, within. And is, is that a useful lens? Mm. Well, I would say yes and no. Uh, it's not useful because the world looks completely different now. You know, the Cold War took place in a bipolar world. There were two superpowers, two blocs, and all other states had to operate within that order. That is no longer the case. China is its own superpower now. We've seen how it's trying to play both sides of this conflict. Other states are doing the same thing. Even within NATO, the U.S. has had a hard time building consensus on things like sanctions. So it means this is a much harder landscape to navigate, both for Russia and for the U.S. There's just a lot more instability within the global order. The term Cold War is a misnomer. It was never cold. It was full of violent proxy wars. But after its first years, it was fairly predictable. Everyone knew the rules of the game. And that is no longer true. What we have now is actually a much more volatile situation. So calling this conflict a Cold War might actually give us a false sense of security. It makes our relationship with Russia out to be familiar when, in fact, it's anything but. But I still think the notion of the Cold War is helpful for understanding this crisis. And here's why. What it reminds us is that what's at stake here is not just geopolitics, but rather a worldview, a vision, an ideology. That's what made the Cold War special. It wasn't just a superpower competition. Those happen all the time. What made the Cold War different is that it was a clash of universalism. Both the United States and the Soviet Union were fighting for a vision of the world. They both believed that their ideology, their political system was best, but they also believed that it was universally valid. They wanted to remake the world in their image, to turn it either democratic or communist. And after the Soviet Union fell apart, even when there were tensions 
between Russia and the U.S., and there have been tensions consistently since, a lot of scholars were reluctant to talk about a continued Cold War. What they said was that Russia didn't have a global vision. It was just pursuing its national interest. And I don't think that's any longer the case. Putin's regime has made it clear that what it opposes are not particular Western states, but the Western political system as such, a whole system of international institutions, of liberal democracies, of political pluralism, of multicultural societies. Putin opposes all of that and instead offers a competing vision, one with a strong centralized state with one dominant party, a populist brand of politics in which the interests of the nation always takes precedence over individuals, and a powerful nationalism that privileges unity over diversity. And that vision is not unique in China. We see it also in Brazil, in India, even in China, states that are all allies of Russia. We also see it in many political parties in the West, parties that Russia supports and sometimes helps to fund. So I do think what we're seeing now is an ideological conflict. Like the Cold War, it is a battle of political systems, competing, contradictory systems. In that sense, it's not just about Ukraine. It goes deep. But what's really tricky here is that the battle lines of this Cold War are jumbled now. They're not just between states, but also within them. This is a conflict that is fought not only in the international arena, but increasingly on, on the home front, in domestic elections, in domestic politics. And that is part of what Russia is getting at here. Wow. Um, tricky indeed. And, and thank you. That, um, I've been trying to wrap my mind around all these different uh, who's allying with who and how to make sense of that. And that really helps me understand that a little bit more. I appreciate that. Um, you know, and finally, you know, historians can't predict the future. Um, but what can history tell us about how this conflict might unfold and how it might come to an end? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Well, this is not a very sober, a, a very rosy thought, but what history tells us is this conflict might not come to an end for a long time. At least its effects will be with us for as long as one can imagine. The Russian army is maybe retreating from Kiev at the moment, and perhaps it will, perhaps it won't. But whenever the guns do fall silent, the effects of the war will still be with it in Ukraine, in Russia, and in the West. In Ukraine, this war has created a new kind of national identity. Ukraine has really struggled to form a cohesive identity since it became an independent state. Or maybe a, a better way of putting it is, Ukraine has had many identities as European, Western, Eastern, post-Soviet. But something we've seen throughout history is there's nothing like a foreign army on your soil to make you feel united, to overcome dif differences, to create a common sense of purpose. And we're certainly seeing that now. There's a new Ukrainian identity that will endure even in emigration, even under occupation. And it's an identity that's going to be directed against Russia for generations in a way it never had been before. That is a reality with many implications. You know, we're likely to see continued resistance 
even in occupied Ukraine, we're likely to see if and when Ukraine regains or maintains its sovereignty, an increasingly anti-Russian line, there are just many dominoes that come from this new anti-Russian national identity that's forming. For Russia, meanwhile, this is a war that's going to be difficult and painful. It is actually a very unpopular war. Russians don't feel a sense of hostility to Ukraine. They don't see what's happening now as a necessary invasion. And the sanctions that the West has imposed will also take their toll. Ordinary people are already feeling the effects. And all of that does put pressure on Putin's government. Even dictatorships have a hard time maintaining morale during wartime, when there are real privations. And also, especially when there are body bags, soldiers coming home. The Soviet Union, when it's fought its war in Afghanistan in the 1980s, lost about 15,000 men. And that was a real challenge to the system, to justify, to explain it. Well, Russia has already lost about as many men just in the first month and a half of fighting. The count is going to go up. So I think it's reasonable to expect some domestic unrest over time. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean that Russians will turn towards the West. Even if they sour on Putin's regime, they're not going to become pro-Western. Those are Western weapons that are killing Russian soldiers. Those are Western sanctions that are making life hard for ordinary people. That's not something Russians will forget. So we may well see political instability in Russia, but if and when Putin's regime falls, what comes after it may not be much better from our perspective. And as for that perspective, as for the West, well, it's been remarkable to see NATO come together, to see Western societies accept millions of Ukrainian refugees. About 4 million Ukrainians have already left the country. Another 3 million have been displaced internally and are likely to flee. It's been incredible to see Western societies rally around this cause, the weather, price increases, domestic difficulties. But we're less than six weeks in. This has been the easy part. What happens after six months, after six years? Even when fighting stops, those refugees won't be able to go home. Not for a long time. There's no more home to go back to. For so many of them, Kiev, other cities are destroyed. So even when the fighting stops, economic ties won't resume. Western companies won't just be able to pick up where they left, where they left off. So we'll really see how long Western unity holds out, because there are going to be real pressures here. And that is very much part of Putin's plan. You know, I mentioned earlier that this war isn't just about Ukraine. It's also about putting pressure on the West. It's about finding those pressure points that have strained Western societies before. Refugee policies, gas prices, international military cooperation, those are all chosen to make life difficult for Western societies. Those are all fracture points. And so part of what Putin wants to do is to create, to promote internal division within Western societies. And this crisis, he is going to do that. The question is, how will we respond? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate um, Professor, you sharing your in this time and this information about the history of Ukraine and Russia. It's 
helps to provide a historical context to what is happening now. It's just such a sobering time right now. And it's such an important and timely topic to discuss. So I really appreciate you taking time to share your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends and families. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. One last thing I'll add is, you know, there may not be a lot that we can do to stop the conflict. It's easy to feel powerless, but there's a lot we can do to help the people affected by it. There are millions of people, millions of Ukrainian refugees that urgently need help. So I would urge all our listeners to go and find ways. There are many institutions, there are many organizations that are working on the ground to help those people. And that is something that all of us can play a role in. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. It's very important. And um, I've found ways to do that and I'll continue to do that. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you again. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcasts on Spotify and with the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.